0: will turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19. I'll read those verses, and we will study them together. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a bird from the hand of the hunter. I'm sorry, save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief, officer, or ruler, as she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perversity, I'm sorry, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Let me ask you, what do you hate? What do you hate? In our culture, it's not very popular to be negative or to talk about what we hate. Conventional wisdom is that love is good and hate is bad. And there's certainly something to that. But the reality is that if you love anything, that love itself probably commits you to hating other things. If you love being productive, you probably hate wasting time. If you love justice, you will hate human trafficking. If you love your neighbor, you will hate the violent crime committed against him. If you love godliness, a part of what that means is hating sin. So what do you hate? And friend, what does that say? about what you love. Well, here's maybe a more important question for us this morning. Uh, what does God hate? If God is perfectly wise and righteous, if God always loves what's good, well, then what does God hate? Well, the, f- the final section of our sermon passage from Proverbs this morning, which I just read, uh, gives us an answer to that question. There in verses 16 to 19, you notice we we have a catalog of seven things that God hates. It's not wrong to see the rest of the passage leading up to those final four verses. So the entire passage is describing lifestyles that God is against or opposed to precisely because he loves and is for what is good. So here in Proverbs chapter 6, we find warnings about three different kinds of people that we are urged not to be or to become, three kinds of lifestyles that God himself says that he opposes. The first two he opposes, the third he says even that he hates. Uh, God permitting, that will serve as our outline this morning, three kinds of people not to be. Uh, or become, or if you prefer, three lifestyles that our good and wise God is against. Uh, the first kind of person not to be, that we're urged not to be, is in verses 1 to 5, the surety, surety, S U R E T Y. What is a surety? Uh, well, a surety in this context is a cosigner uh, or someone who takes responsibility for someone else's financial obligations so if I want to take out a loan from the bank, but I lack the credit to do so because the bank uh, doesn't trust me to pay it back, you could, in some circumstances, become a surety for me. Or in other words, you could put up security for me. You could co-sign for the loan with me and agree to pay the bank the debt if I can't. That's what Proverbs 6 is talking about there in in the first verse. It says, my son, if you have put up security, that's what it means to be a surety. If you've put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, pledged to pay the debt that he's now undertaking if he can't. Well, the the main point that this passage makes about becoming a surety is that it's a foolish commitment. Verse two continues to describe what it's like to be a surety for someone else. Verse 1, if you've put up security. Verse 2, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. So the father pictures this son's verbal commitment to put up security for someone else as an entangling snare or a net or a trap, which now obligates the son uh, to do things that are to his disadvantage and uh, seeking to apply this passage we might think of other kinds of snares that are created by our own words i myself have numerous times been snared in overcommitment due to nothing but my own words there are so many things on my plate i can't do them well i can't rest well how did i get here well i put all those things on my plate with my words I snared myself in my overcommitment, right? Sometimes there's an opportunity to do something or to get something or to, to be a help. And the thing that draws me to volunteer for that is, oh man, I would feel and look to others like the hero right now if I committed to doing that. But actually, it's not a good idea to do. And I snare myself in a commitment like that. It's possible to be caught in the snare of your own debt, which is really a commitment to pay for something later that you want now. Uh, To be clear, Proverbs isn't... This passage is not about all of those commitments. They're kind of parallel situations. And also to be clear, Proverbs is certainly not anti-commitment. Proverbs speaks glowingly about the virtue of faithfulness. Uh, But we see there in verse 3 that there's something especially foolish about the commitment to be a financial surety. The second line of verse 3 says that when you've become a surety, it says, you have come into the hand of your neighbor. In other words, you've needlessly put yourself at the mercy of your neighbor's foolishness. This seems to be why Proverbs is pro-generosity but anti-surety. So, lending to others, giving to others, forgiving the debts of others, even paying the past debts, not the future, but the past debts of others. Proverbs is in favor of all of those things. But being a surety, Proverbs repeatedly says that it's foolish. Proverbs 11.15 says, whoever puts up security for a stranger will surely suffer harm, but he who hates striking hands in pledge is secure. Again, Proverbs twenty-two, twenty-six to 27. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who puts up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Uh, Bible commentators Bruce Waltke and Ivan De Silva put it this way. They say, becoming surety is double folly. The surety makes promises for a future he does not control and hands himself to a potential fool. Okay, so, so what should you do if you find yourself ensnared as a financial surety for someone else? Well, again, from verse one, my son, if you've put up security, verse two, if you're snared in the words of your mouth, verse three, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you've come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Your words, the Father says, got you into this mess. Use your clear and urgent words to get yourself out of it. Sounds like a good plan. I'll schedule a time to do that next week. No, 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 no. Look at verses four and five. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. The advice is, waste no time. Do it urgently. Friend, can you see once again how good and wise God's instructions are here? In telling us not to become a surety, Proverbs is not, you know, making the cookies contraband. right? Proverbs is labeling the rat poison clearly so that you don't eat it. The first person not to be like in this passage is the surety who snares himself in his words. Second person... Uh, not to be or to be like in this passage, uh, is also caught in a kind of snare. And that person is the sluggard. The sluggard discussed there in verses uh, 6 to 11. Uh, What is a sluggard? Uh, So Proverbs mentions the sluggard 14 times. Uh, Basically, a sluggard is a lazy person. It's a person who refuses to work wisely. Let me give you a few of the things that Proverbs says elsewhere about the sluggard, just to give you a picture. So first, Proverbs says the the sluggard wants but won't work. He wants but he won't work. Proverbs 21, 25 says the desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. He wants but he won't work for it. Second, the sluggard denies reality. The sluggard denies reality. Proverbs twenty two thirteen 13 says, The sluggard says, There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. The sensible t- thing to do would be to go out and work. But so that he feels all right about not doing that, what does the sluggard do? He makes up imaginary threats. He imagines danger where there is none to justify not working. The sluggard denies Reality. A third, the sluggard doesn't take care of what he has. The sluggard doesn't take care of what he has. Proverbs twenty four thirty to 31 says, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. In that society, your field or your vineyard wasn't just some property that you owned. It, it was the means of production. You, you made money. You produced food uh, and wine to sell and drink from your field, from your vineyard. So this isn't just saying, oh, the sluggard has a messy room, right? Although he probably does. But if you have a messy room, that doesn't mean you're a sluggard. Um, th- this proverb is saying that the, the sluggard has this asset which is vital t- to use to produce for his own good and the good of his family. And, and through neglect, he lets it get, be totally ruined. The sluggard doesn't take care of what he has. Fourth and finally, the sluggard doesn't follow through. The sluggard doesn't follow through. Proverbs nineteen twenty four. I love this one. It says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. I used to read that and think, okay, that's silly. No one is that lazy. But then I realized we do that all the time. The sluggard buys the book and never gets around to reading it. The sluggard buys the groceries and never gets around to cooking them. The sluggard starts the project, but he won't finish it. The sluggard gets halfway organized, and that's all. The sluggard starts to try to seek the Lord, uh, but he, he doesn't follow through. Friends, can you see that we all, all of us, have some sluggard in us? Right? We, even those of you who are high achieving, crazy busy, impressive Northern Virginians, right, we, we all have sluggard in us. So, what does this wise father say uh, to the sluggard? Well, he says two things. Uh, First, he he calls the sluggard to consider the ant, to consider the ant. Uh, We've seen throughout Proverbs that there's a connection between wise behavior and the way that God made the world. So wise living is living with the grain of reality, so to speak. So it shouldn't surprise us to see wise behavior in one of God's creatures, in the ant. Look at verses 6 to 8. They say, "Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise." Without having any chief officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So what, what do we see in this example of the ant? Well, the passage seems to be pointing out that the ant is self-motivated. There's no ant taskmaster constantly telling the ant what to do, or it just sits there. The ant's initiative, the ant's drive to work diligently, come from within itself. Notice also, the ant isn't only self-motivated, the the ant is also forward-looking. It says that the ant prepares her bread in summer, a Proverbs seems here to be talking about the harvester ant, uh, which stores grain in its nest during the summer. Uh, that's because grain isn't so readily available in the winter. The, the point is not just that the ant works hard all the time. It's that the, work, the ant works at the opportune time in view of future necessity. The ant works now in anticipation of future need. We might even say that the ant lives in light of the connection between how I work now and how it will go with me later. The ant doesn't work hard in order to feel good about itself. The ant doesn't work hard so that people find him more impressive than the beetle. It's not about status for the ant. It's not about pride. The ant works hard because it understands the connection between what I do now and how that will affect my life later. The sluggard is invited to consider the wisdom of the ant. And second, the sluggard is also invited to consider himself, to reflect on what he's doing. There in verse 9, it says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? notice both the surety and the sluggard are told not to sleep. The The point seems to be not that sleep is bad, right? Early in Proverbs, we we heard the promise that if we're wise, our sleep will be sweet. Uh, The point seems to be that sleep here is a symbol for the path of least resistance. Sleep is the path that requires nothing hard. For the surety, sleep doesn't require humbling yourself to get out of your commitment. For the sluggard, sleep doesn't require the hard work of getting up and doing hard work. So to be really clear, sleep is great. Everyone has to sleep. Rest is wonderful. But sluggard, your sleep, your non-work, it just seems to go on and on and on. When will you arise from it? Commentator Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, the sluggard will not make up his mind. Says the sluggard, ah, but I'm not, I'm not really sleeping that much. I just need a little break. You know, I just, I'm taking some time to rest. But look at verse 10. The sluggard says, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Isn't that interesting? I expect the sluggard to say a lot of sleep. Right? I, I have planned to sleep all day. But that's not the point. Uh, Commentator Derek Kidner says this, this is so insightful. He says, the sluggard does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by inches and minutes, his opportunity slips away. That's convicting to me. He deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. The sluggard loses his opportunity gradually, but his ruin comes suddenly and forcefully. Verses 10 and 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The slugger doesn't think he's making any massively foolish decisions, just a, just a little more sleep. But then the results of his folly are on top of him like a robber. The sluggard refuses to reckon with the future, and that failure finally catches up with him. So how should we apply the father's words uh, about the sluggard? Well, really, I think we can apply them anywhere that God has given us opportunity, anywhere that God has given us responsibility. We can apply these words financially with our money, in what we do with the opportunities and resources that God has given us as a church. Uh, in what we do with our relationships, in what we do in our relationship with the Lord, we can either be self motivated and forward looking, or we can be lazy and careless and deceive ourselves by endless, tiny refusals to work. Uh, if you're here this morning and you are a young person, under 18, I am so glad you guys are here. Love you guys very, very much. Listen, I, I once was uh, friends with a group of young people. I was not a young person. I was working with them. I loved these young people. Many of them were good friends of mine. Uh, there was one thing that this group of young people did that was really foolish. It, it grieved me to, to hear them do this. They would make fun of each other for working hard. They would make fun of each other for working hard. I remember clearly one of them saying to, an, to another, so-and-so is such a try-hard. She's a try-hard. They said it like it was an insult, right? She's, oh, my gosh, she's just working so hard. Isn't that so uncool that she would devote herself to her studies or try to win at the game or whatever, you know? Listen, young people, don't, don't ever be ashamed to be a try-hard. It's not uncool to work hard. God says it's wise to work hard. You cannot earn God's love by trying hard. God loved you before you started trying. And sometimes you do need to stop trying and rest. But God's word says that hard work is often the path that leads to blessing saints, may God help us to consider the ant, to consider what self-motivated and forward-looking God-honoring work looks like. May he help us to consider ourselves. The second person not to be is the sluggard. And again, can you see God is not being a curmudgeon in warning us against sluggardliness. God warns us about sluggardliness for our good because he loves us. The third and final person not to be like uh, in this passage is the scoundrel. The surety, the sluggard, and the scoundrel, spoken of in verses 12 to 19. A suretyship and sluggardliness are foolish things that God opposes. Uh, The behavior of the scoundrel is on the next level. It's hateful to the Lord, as we see in verse 16. Uh, This final section uh, divides pretty naturally in half. So in verses 12 to 15, Uh, we're introduced to, quote, a worthless person, a wicked man. And those verses really focus on the the social behavior of this kind of person. And verses 16 to 19, they use many of the same terms as verses 12 to 15 to describe uh, seven things that the Lord hates. Uh, The main point of that first half, again, verses 12 to 15, seems to be that the scoundrel causes division There in verse 12, we see this guy speaks with crooked speech. We've seen before that crooked speech is misleading speech. It's speech full of half-truths. In verse 13, we're told that the scoundrel winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. I know many of you are very convicted now about all the signaling you've been doing with your feet. I I don't know what that means. It seems like in the society of that day, commentators think that these gestures were associated with mocking or maybe with scheming. So this seems to be the equivalent of rolling your eyes behind someone's back to your friend or using your social power to manipulate or hurt secret communication to others to plan the downfall of somebody else. And notice in verse 14, the motive of this person's behavior is a perverted heart that devises evil. We'll come back to that, the heart. And the result of this behavior is that he's continually sowing discord. Friends, I I think the, the profile of this worthless person urges us to ask, what is the impact of your speech on your community? What is the impact of your speech on your community? on your friends, on your workplace, on your family, on your nation, on your local church? What difference do the words that you speak make to the health, say, of Franconia Baptist Church? Is, Is the net result of your speech unity and love? Or is it discord and disunity, right? Do you gossip and mock? Is your speech calculated to harm people who have displeased you and to kind of rally supporters in your cause against them? Here's here's kind of a secondary application of these principles. What's the motive and then the result of your political speech? In the way that you speak about current affairs and, and politics, are you malicious and scheming and given to scoffing? To be clear, Proverbs has no problem clearly denouncing evil. In fact, we are commanded in Scripture to call evil things evil. But there's a really big difference between humbly and courageously speaking truth to evil and speaking maliciously and divisively to and about the people with whom you disagree. Uh, Verse 15 has this to say about how the scoundrel's actions will circle back toward him. It says, therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Again, Proverbs warns us that our folly will come back to hurt us in the end. If you're wise, you're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. Don't think you can sow social discord indefinitely and not reap consequences. We get another take on the scoundrel in the second half of this final section, verses 16 to 19. These verses are introduced as a list of six, no wait, seven things that the Lord hates. Verse 16, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Again, commentators are divided about what the meaning of the whole six, no, seven device is. It's possible that that's a way of saying that this is a non-exhaustive list. It's a way of saying, I, I could give you a bunch, let me give you six. No, I'll give you seven, as if to say there are more like this. It could be a way of drawing attention to that seventh item in the list as especially important. That doesn't seem to be the case always when this device is used. It, it might be here. In any case, we have a list here of seven things that God himself is said to hate. <clears throat> now just before we dive into the list, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, <clears throat> first, again, we're, we're just delighted that you have come. We hope you feel welcome. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, my guess is that some of the claims of this passage seem more plausible to you than others. right? So it's unwise to be a surety okay, that, that, that makes sense to me. Uh, it's unwise to be a sluggard. Yeah, that, you don't have to be a Christian to see that that's really good advice. But the idea that God is righteously hateful towards sin and towards sinners, right, that, that sounds a bit extreme, right? My preferred concept of God is more inclusive than that. Like, surely, surely God doesn't hate My friend, if that's you, let me just encourage you as we walk through this list to see if something in your conscience doesn't resonate with the voice of God in the scriptures. Notice also how you yourself respond to these things when you're on the receiving end of them. The first thing in this list that God hates is haughty eyes, haughty or lifted up eyes. In the Bible, eyes are often a metaphor for how we think about things. Our eyes are how we view the world, literally and metaphorically. And God hates it when we view the world through the lens of pride, when, so to speak, we look down on other people, when we view them with a sense of superiority to them. That thing that we do when we compare ourselves with others in our minds Right? Am I smarter? Am I richer? Am I cooler? Am I godlier? Am I more gifted? Am I better looking? Right? That's a symptom of haughty eyes. And don't you hate it when people look at you with haughty eyes? When in the way people interact with you, the subtext of what they're doing is I'm better than you. Don't you hate that? Well, even more so, God hates haughty eyes. When we have haughty eyes, we are lifting ourselves up in God's place as the judge, as the righteous one, as the one who deserves glory. And God says that's abominable to him. The second thing God hates there in verse 17 is a lying tongue. Don't you hate being lied to? Doesn't it hurt? Don't you hate to see people in your life or in the news Getting away with wrongful things by lying. You're right to hate lying. God hates lying too. Here's the bad news we all lie more than we think we do. We lie about our motives, we lie to seem just a little bit more impressive than we are, we lie to hide our sins, we lie to protect our vanity we lie about what we really want we lie to keep people from being offended we don't just hate being lied to we hate the idea that we tell lies don't we right I, I say that out loud and i think oh surely not me right i don't i don't tell like little lies occasionally why because i know that lies are terrible right can can you see that god is good and right to hate lying Second thing God hates is the lying tongue. Third thing God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. He hates the hands that shoot. At the innocent, he hates the hands of the civilian who instigates violence toward the police officer. He hates the hands of the police officer who abuses his power with unwarranted lethal force. He hates the hands that hold the instruments that rip the unborn baby up in abortion. God hates the hands that prepare and dispense and take the abortion pills, mifeprestone and misoprostol, which cause the death of a living child. God hates the hands that administer euthanasia to the elderly. God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. And he's right to do so. He would not be good if he didn't. Fourth thing God hates, verse 18 a heart that devises wicked plans. <clears throat> Let me skip over this one for now. We'll say more about that one in a moment. Fifth thing God hates, feet that make haste to run to evil. Just last Sunday in Atlanta, violent protesters smashed windows and vandalized uh, the police foundation building in Atlanta and set a police vehicle on fire. Some of the people who did this weren't even from Atlanta. They flew in from out of town to vandalize a city, to burn a cop car, and to destroy public property. Listen, when sin grows up, sin doesn't just cave to temptation when temptation comes to you. Sometimes sin moves us to seek temptation. Sometimes sin moves our feet to run after evil. Sometimes we go looking for a fight, for an opportunity to boast, for things we shouldn't look at, for things we shouldn't say. Sometimes our feet run to evil. Just as God hates the hands that shed innocent blood, number three, he hates the feet that make haste to run to evil, number five. Sixth thing God hates, verse 19, a false witness who breathes out lies. Interesting parallel between number two, a lying tongue, and number six, a false witness. It's possible number six here has in view the idea of lying in court, particularly, not just interpersonally. God hates that. Seventh and final thing, God hates, verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. Listen, if you've ever been caught in hostility or discord between brothers, between those who were meant to be close, between Christians especially, You'll understand why those who stir up that kind of discord are hateful to God. By the way, Christian, be on the alert. There are those who, the, those who desire to stir up Christian brothers against one another. God hates those who stir up strife and disunity among brothers through their gossip and their dishonesty and their slander and their stubbornness, but most especially, I think, through their pride, through their haughty eyes. In fact, this list of seven abominations seems intentionally structured to kind of highlight the relationship between haughty eyes, the first abomination, and sowing discord, or the last one, the seventh. Many have noticed that this list of seven things seems to be a chiasm. Remember, a chiasm is a literary device in which the first element of a list matches the last element. And the second element of the list matches the second-to-last element. The third matches the third to the last. And there's usually something really important in the middle of the chiasm. It's a way of structuring material topically, showing similarities between elements, and highlighting the center. So what do we have in this chiasm? Well, we have haughty eyes at the beginning. What's at the end? Discord. What's the result of our haughty eyes, our pride? It's disunity. What do we have one step in? Second, we have a lying tongue. And again, we have a false witness, second to last. One step in, what do we have? We have hands that shed innocent blood and feet that run to evil. Feet and hands. What's right in the middle of the chiasm? It's the heart that devises wicked plans. You see, Proverbs is showing us again the reason we do proud and hurtful And wicked things is because we have wicked hearts. Notice the body part language. Again, Proverbs loves this. Eyes, tongue, hands, feet. Each of these are driven by what the heart plans, what it wants, how it lifts itself up in God's place and loves itself more than its neighbor. Friends, can you see yourself on this list of things that God hates? even if you haven't literally shed innocent blood or lied in court, can you see the beginnings of those sins in the heart that devises wicked plans? Herman Boving puts it this way. He says, the seeds of all iniquities, even the most heinous, lie in the very heart which we all carry in our bosom. The transgressors and criminals Are not a peculiar race, but come up out of the society of which we are all members. They, the criminals, merely exhibit what is going on in continuous agitation and turbulence in the secret heart of every man. The things that are wrong with us, the things that are hateful to God, they aren't incidental habits. It's not like, oh, we have a few small behavioral. Issues to work on. The problem is our hands, our feet, our tongues, our mouths, ultimately our hearts. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to speak about the message of, of the Bible with a man who lives in my neighborhood. Kind man, lovely man, delightful man, enjoyed speaking with him. I asked this man about what he thought would happen when he died. And he said that he expected to be judged by God according to how he had lived and according to what he had done, according to the kind of person he'd been. And so I, I asked him whether he anticipated receiving God's forgiveness for the things that he had done wrong. He talked about lying and, and a past life that he had. And he said something like, I, I don't really know whether God will forgive me, but, but I try my best to live in a way that would deserve God's forgiveness. This this man was hoping that out of fondness for his positive qualities, God would kind of excuse what was lacking. Listen, that, that doesn't work if you yourself are the problem. The problem is your hands, your tongue, your mouth, your feet, your heart. That's what's abominable to him. Friends, can you see once again that Proverbs shows us that there is no hope for sureties and sluggards and scoundrels like us apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Proverb 6 shows us why it's such wonderful news that in mercy, the God who hates our sins gave his son Jesus to bear those hateful sins as he died on the cross. Listen, when Jesus died, They whacked nails through his hands to append him to a cross. Why? Because his hands were being treated like they were your hands. They whacked nails through his feet. Why? Because his feet got treated like they were your feet. Jesus' heart gave out. It stopped beating on the cross. Why? Because he was bearing the penalty for the sins, the wicked schemes of our hearts. John Piper talks about this. He, He says, many people say that God hates the sin and loves the sinner. There's a lot of truth to that. But sin isn't like my shirt, right? My shirt isn't me. I could take it off and wear a different one. Sin is in us. We are sinners, and in order for God to deal with our sin problem, this is what 1 Peter chapter 2 says has to, had to happen. It says that Jesus bore our sins in his body. Eyes, hands, feet, mouth, tongue, in his body. <coughs> Excuse me. On the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed, writes Peter Jesus Christ died to remove the wrath of God against sin for all who would trust in him. Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead to give him new life, to give new life to all who would turn from sin to trust in Jesus Christ, to forgive them, to wipe out their sin debt, to remove his wrath from them. Christian, if you're struggling this morning to believe that God loves you, that he's for you, Look at the cross. Look at the cross. The father was well aware of all that was hateful about you. And he gave his well-pleasing son to die that you might be forgiven. The Lord Jesus knew the full weight of the father's hatred for sin. And he willingly took it in your place. God has poured out his own Holy Spirit in your heart so that he might work in you what is pleasing to him as you continue to turn from sin. God hates sin. And can you see, Christian, he hates your sin because he loves you. Right, Just as this wise father encourages his son, son, don't be a surety, it will hurt you. Son, don't be a sluggard, it will hurt you. Right? Our good and wise father urges us, son, turn away from sin. It leads to death. There is no life there. God hates our sin because he loves us. Let me, let me close with this. Brothers and sisters, I think the main application of this passage is to grow in humble, holy hatred of our own sin, not to grow in having haughty eyes in how we regard others, and notice their sins so quickly and so vividly. There's a place for noticing the sins of your brother after you've removed the log from your eye. I think the main application of this passage is to grow in humble, holy hatred of our own sin, to see how wise and how trustworthy our God is, to see the goodness and the wisdom of the justice of his hatred of sin, and to see that his mercy is even bigger than our sin to see that there's even more grace in Jesus Christ than there is sin in us. And that as we see that in him, that we would become like the one that we're beholding, that we would come to share his view of the hatefulness of sin, that we would grow to believe that sin is folly and leads to death, and by God's grace, that we would rejoice to turn to him for mercy and grace and new life. Let's pray that God would continue that work in us now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good and wise warnings. God, thank you that you are so clear with us about what is good and what is evil. God, thank you that in your mercy, although there is evil in us, you have given your son to bear our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Lord, thank you for your great patience with us as we continue to struggle. Lord, as we, as we behold your goodness, your kindness, and your holiness, and your justice, Lord, would you make us like you? Would you produce in us a hatred for that which is opposed to you from a love for you, for, from a love for your holiness and for nearness to you? Lord, would you grow us in our gratitude and our amazement uh, that you would extend grace to us. Would you do these these things in us for your glory and for our joy through Jesus Christ. Amen.